Uh, This morning, let's open our Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 19. Last week, if you remember, we finished chapter 18. We looked at chapter 18 and we looked at this idea of, uh, of dealing with sin within individuals in the church and with one another and, and just the order that God had prescribed for us to, to reconcile these things and to hopefully have healing and, and, and to move on from a place of disobedience or sin and, and how we ought to approach that in the church. And it's very simple. We just go, go, go to the person, one-on-one. That's the first step. And then if that doesn't work, you bring a couple more and, and you talk to them, pray to them, try to convince them of what they've done. And if, if that doesn't work, then you shoot them. No, just kidding. You, um, I figured you'd like that. Maybe there's, there's, a, there's a cop humor. My brother would be laughing and my mother would be giggling, but... Um, no, you take, you take them before the church, and, and thank God we haven't had to really do that here. But we looked at that, and we also looked at this, um, the parable of the unforgiving servant, someone who had been, been forgiven much and yet wasn't forgiving themselves. And, and I find it interesting, um, you know, that now as we get into this marriage and divorce, uh, these first 12 verses of chapter 19, it's, it's kind of, uh, at least in Matthew's gospel, it's, it's right after that idea of dealing with issues and unforgiveness, right into marriage. I don't think that's any coincidence. But between chapters 18 and 19, just so you kind of get a handle of the chronology here, uh, while Jesus was still in Capernaum, In Galilee, Jesus was exhorted by his brothers to go to Judea to attend the Feast of Tabernacles, but we know that Jesus didn't go initially, but then after his brothers went, he went secretly, and he did it um, because the Jews were looking for him to try and kill him. Uh, But after his brothers had left, he, he went down, and he went to Judea, but not through Samaria. Normally, when you would go from Uh, Galilee in this region up in the north, normally you'd go right straight through Samaria, right down to through Judea to Jerusalem. But Jesus went from uh, up here in Galilee and skirted around the other side. And the Jordan River is right down the center of uh, of Israel here between the, the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus went on this other side where the Gentiles were, and they received him. And then he, finally, right before the northern tip of the, the Dead Sea, he crosses over into Jerusalem and, and because they were, they were threatening to kill him. But his time was not yet. His hour had not yet come. There was a time when Jesus would go to Jerusalem when his hour had come. He knew exactly what was happening, for it had been prophesied for hundreds of years, even a few thousand years, his purpose in going to Jerusalem was to be crucified. He knew this. The, the, the Old Testament tells us that this is the purpose of the Son of God, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, to go. That was the purpose for him to go to Jerusalem, to die for your, on, on my behalf and on your behalf, so that we would not see death and hell. That's a pretty good thing, isn't it? He was the sin bearer. Because he is God, he's perfect and almighty and everything. His blood was perfect. God accepted that sacrifice in place of mine and yours. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, then we are accepted by God because he, we have, we believe in the sacrifice that Christ was on the cross in our place. And as a result, he was the one who atoned for our sin. And if we put our faith in him, we'll never see eternal damnation. We'll never see hell. It's a word nobody likes to talk about, but Jesus talked a lot about it. So this all occurred just about six months prior to his crucifixion, and it would be the last time that Jesus would leave Galilee. He would never return there because six months later, as he was itinerant down there in Judea and around Jerusalem, they would ultimately crucify him. But notice, let's read in Matthew 19, because immediately after this, after he goes down to the Feast of Tabernacles, it tells us, 
that it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Beyond the Jordan is literally on the eastern side of the Jordan, as you see on the screen, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, beyond Jordan, that's what it's referring to. And great multitudes followed him, and these were Gentiles, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Well, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, Permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. And his disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man and his wife, it is better better than not to marry. And Jesus said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. For the king of heaven's sake, and he was able to accept it, let him accept it. So a very interesting um, passage of scripture before us, and um, I find it interesting, again, that shortly after the events of chapter 18, as I said before, that uh, it goes right into this idea of marriage and divorce. Perhaps the greatest places that we exercise resolving issues and, 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 and difficulties and even forgiveness is right within our own marriages. And it makes me think, how many marriages are there here today where people are still harboring unforgiveness and bitterness? You know, how many uh, still here haven't talked things out? And how many years has it been? How many years has it gone on and you just haven't come together and talked about it? It's just something lying under the surface, but you've never really talked about it. You just kind of like, well, it's not too bad. And so you just kind of avoid the issue. And years have gone on. And do you know that the longer you wait and you don't resolve those things, it's like a cancer. And things have a tendency to build upon one another. One hurt built upon another hurt, upon another hurt, upon another hurt. Pretty soon, you're no longer, you're just existing together. And you're no longer really talking together. You're no longer having the intimacy that you once had, physically and spiritually. And everything has just gone by the wayside. But God hates divorce. He loves marriage. He invented it. It's a good invention, wouldn't you say? But he hates divorce. And the marriage covenant isn't it? It's sacred and it's binding. And even on top of that, it's prophetic of Christ and the church. And that's what makes this whole thing so wonderful and so beautiful. God's sight of marriage and what it is. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a representation of Christ and the church because we are the bride of Christ. If you're a believer, you're the bride of Christ and he is our groom. And one day the groom is going to come for the bride. He's going to meet us. He's going to take us off this earth and transform our bodies in the twinkling of an eye. Aren't you looking forward to that? And we will be, the marriage will be consummated between us and Christ. But until that day, we make ourselves ready. And we'll look at that in a little bit. But notice in verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee... And he came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, again on the eastern side of the Jordan. And again going there because the Jews wanted to kill him. And the Jewish leaders, remember, had already rejected Jesus back in Matthew 12, verse 24, when he was casting out a demon from a man. And and they said to him, you're casting out demons by the very spirit of Satan himself. 
and the religious leaders wholesale had rejected their Savior, the one that the prophecies of the Old Testament, Isaiah and Malachi, and going all the way back to Genesis, had been prophesying of. And here he was, standing right in front of them, and they didn't know it. And instead of embracing him, they persecuted them, him and ultimately pinned him to a cross by Roman nails. And great multitudes followed him, verse 2, and he healed them there. You know, it's hard for the creator of the universe to see his masterpiece. And you and I are his masterpiece. We are his workmanship, his poema in the Greek. We are his masterpiece. When you went to school and college, they told you, well, you just evolved from apes and monkeys, and why are they still with us today? Duh. (laughs) That That plan must have really worked out for you. No. No, we were created in the image of God, and they were always with us. Apes and monkeys were in the garden, and there are apes and monkeys that are here with us today, and they're not evolving. The biggest lie in the world, evolution. Never forget that. (laughs) But God hates to see his creation in hurting and in pain, especially because of the result of sin. The result of sin has brought pain, it's brought sickness, it's brought death. And sin and uh, sickness and death were not even a feature in Adam and Eve's Garden of Eden. There was no sickness and death until after the fall. And like Jesus, compassion is something that we ought to demonstrate as well, as he demonstrated his compassion in ministering to these people. And we should pray that God gives us this very same heart. Because the unfortunate thing is, is that many people have swindled or taken advantage of Christian charity So much so that when somebody who really needs help, who really is the genuine McCoy, we tend to push them away because they appear to be just like all the rest. And we tend to put them all in a bucket and say, you guys are just a bunch of charlatans and cheats. And yes, there are a lot of charlatans and cheats, but among them are some who really are in a bad place and they're really looking for help. And so it requires discernment then on our part, right? As Jesus heals those people beyond the Jordan, we need to have that same heart, especially today because hearts are hardened completely today because of everything that's going on in our country. People's hearts are getting hard, but Jesus, he wasn't hardened. So ask the Lord for discernment to know when to give, how to give, and how much to give because these things are important. Now between verses 2 and 3 here in our text, there are over 53 different events that occurred. So think of that. There's there's some time here, a few months at least, a few months at least that happened between verses 2 and 3 here that are recorded for us in Luke and John's gospel. And we're not going to go over those right now because now we go right into verse 3 after those events, getting very close to his False arrest. Anybody hear about those lately? False arrests. And... But the Pharisees came to him in verse 3, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And the idea here, this word testing, is a Greek word, pyrodso, and it means to scrutinize or to entice or to tempt or to make a trial of. And can I just say, it's not a good idea to tempt God. Not a good idea to tempt God. God doesn't even tempt you. Do you know that? What does the Bible tell us? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. Who is the tempter? Satan is your tempter. He is the one who entices you to sin. Now, will God test you? Yes, he will test you. He will allow you to go through difficult things And it's during those difficult things that we have to rest in Christ. We have to hold on to him and say, Lord, I don't even know what to do, what to say. I am just going to sit here in front of my bed and I'm just going to weep and and Lord help. And you know that's the best place is to be reliant upon Jesus Christ. But they tested him. They were in the seat of judge. And he was the defendant should be the other way around. The Bible puts us on trial, doesn't it? We are never to test God. It's not a good thing to test the Lord. 
It's the same word, this pyrazo, is the same word that we see in Matthew's gospel when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness and tempted by the devil. And each time the devil tempted Jesus, what did Jesus say? Well, didn't you read in the, in the scholarly journal about this or that? No, he didn't. He, how did he respond to the devil? Every single one of his attacks, he responds with the word of God. He responds with this. And he responds with Deuteronomy specifically and counters every punch that the enemy is throwing at him. Yes, the word of God is sharp, it's powerful, it's quicker, it's sharp and quick and powerful to divide between sword and spirit, between the joints and the marrow, able to discern the intentions of the heart, the Bible says. Do we have that faith in the word of God that it is powerful? Trust me, when you read Scripture out loud, demons are frightened. When you read Scripture, when you invoke the Word of God and you invoke Christ into any situation, demons are powerless. That is the truth, folks. And that's something that the church, we need to get back into and have faith and believe that that is the case because this is not just some novel you can re, you know, pick up at a, a garage sale for 25 cents and you read it and you throw it away. No, this is the living Word of God. We can trust it with our lives. And many have given their lives for it. And the the greatest one, Jesus, God himself, gave his life for it. So the Pharisees, in verse 3, they said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? There was a a well-known rabbi back in the first century during Jesus' time. He was a Talmudic scholar by the name of Hillel. And he and his followers believed that a man could divorce his wife for nearly any reason. And there was also another rabbi who was a contemporary of his named Shimei, and he believed that a man could only divorce his wife due to adultery. And he was actually closer to the truth than, than, than the other. And Jesus answered, verse 4, Have you not read, have you not read, that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female. I want you to underline that in your Bible. One of the jobs of a a pastor is not only to expose darkness, and I'm going to expose some darkness this morning, but it's also to proclaim the truth. And I want to take a moment to address a timely subject because it's close to home where we're at today, where this passage is concerned And the road here for a few minutes is going to be a little bumpy, okay? And some of you are not going to feel comfortable, but I'm going to share it nonetheless. And I don't think anybody's going to be surprised by it, but I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up because we are right here in it now, in the thick of it. In our culture, in our world, right now, this is the elephant in the room. And so, uh, but I look at these words of Jesus. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning... Uh, made them male and female, and these words of Jesus ought to be spoken to the Penfield School Board. It ought to be shown to them. Why is there confusion? Why is there confusion? Because this is the truth. Men are men and women are women. Men have an X and Y chromosome, and women have an X chromosome. And a simple blood test can determine, regardless of anything else, where you are. It's very simple, folks. And this is science. That is science. And it can be confirmed by a blood test. So I bring this up because male and female, notice God created them. This is something that God did. This is not something that some Yale or Harvard professor is making up. No, this is what God says. And it's the most important thing that you will take into your heart today is what he says. Notice that God is not confused about gender like so many today. Never before did gender confusion get into uh, all the schools and permeate our culture until around COVID and the radical Marxist changes that have occurred in the current administration. It, didn't, it wasn't happening before then, but all of a sudden in the last three years, it's, it's taking over. Has anybody noticed that? Raise your hand if you're aware of this. Because it's true. It's happening. 
And now nearly every school from kindergarten all the way up through college are promoting gender ideology, believing and promoting a false doctrine. Yes, it is. It's a false doctrine. Believing and promoting a doctrine that says a boy can be a girl and a girl can be a boy and that a boy can have a menstrual cycle and that a boy can even get pregnant. Did you know that? Many schools now have feminine hygiene products in the boys' restrooms. Folks, these people need Jesus. And I don't blame the kids so much. I blame their parents and their educators and those in the highest offices of our country. They are dead wrong. And what they're doing right now is they're poking God in the eye. And they had better turn from their sin because God will deal with them harshly. He says, if you do anything to these little ones of mine, it would be better for you that a millstone were tied around your neck and you were cast into the midst of the Marianas Trench. That's what he said. It'd be better for you for that to happen. They're being seduced by demons and promoting doctrines of demons, allowing biological men, transgender women to share the locker rooms and, and shower rooms of, of, of biological women. And the women are just going, what, why isn't somebody standing up for us? It's unbelievable. Biological males competing in women's sports and nearly uh, always getting the gold medal. Nearly always getting the gold medal. Smashing records. And now they say that a man can nurse a child. I've got videos and, and uh, articles of all this stuff. This is, I'm not making this up. But this ideology is devilish, and we're fighting hard to take back not only our public schools, but even Christian schools that have caved in to this demonic delusion. Does it sound like I'm frustrated and angry? I am, and I'm not going to lie to you. I am. But I know the solution is Christ. The truth of the gospel And those who brazenly dare to oppose what God has clearly stated in his word, they have. What does it tell us in Genesis? Um, you can turn there, but I'm just going to read it to you quickly for the sake of time. God, this is what God says in Genesis 1.24. God says, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. Do you follow me? There's no evolution here. There's kinds. <laughs> okay? There's an animal kingdom. There's a, a, a fish and of birds and of animals, and they all have their, and they were all created. And God said, let us make man in our image. He wasn't schizophrenic. He was speaking of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let him have what? Dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female he created them period exclamation point right men and women he created them male and female and then notice god blessed them he blessed them and god said to them be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To, be, it, to you it shall be for food, also to the, every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air. And everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. And then notice verse 31. God saw everything that he had made. Indeed, it was very good. And so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. 24-hour period. The word is yam. One 24-hour period. He did all that in one day. And there is no valid science behind the gender cult is there? 
There really isn't. They don't have a leg to stand on. But many objective and honest doctors admit that this is a mental and spiritual problem and it cannot be solved through hormone injections, puberty blockers, or transitional surgery. Do you know that those who have gone through transitional surgery are 17 times more likely to commit suicide than the average person? 17 times more after they have the surgery and many of them want to go back but they can't because it's already done. And many young people have to have ruined their lives. And the school systems and the parents and authorities in our country are saying, this is all good. And you don't even have to have your parents' permission. Just tell us. Children of the state, of the Soviet Union. Does that sound familiar? That's what's happening. So parents, grandparents, and I'll be off this horse in just a second. Parents and grandparents, educate yourself. Educate yourself. Get involved with what is happening at the school board meetings in your town. Form or join groups and committees and, and fight to root this cancer out of the schools. Fight lawfully. I'm, you know, I'm not talking about guns and violence, okay? Just to be safe here. We're not talking about violence. We're talking about using words and showing up and being present and holding people accountable. Be brave, because the truth is on your side. God is on your side. Amen? So don't be afraid when they cancel you and they call you a racist or a bigot or a hater. They did all these things to Jesus too, but don't worry. Don't you worry. Jesus said, and he answered, verse 4, and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, notice, to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here Jesus is quoting from Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. And he says, and it says in Genesis 2, verse 21, The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. It was nap time for him. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That's literally what woman means. The word woman means taking, taken out of man. That rib that God, he didn't need to create another human being. He already created Adam. He just need for whatever reason, he took it. And I wonder if it was from the left side, too, right where the heart is. Wouldn't that be interesting? We don't really know which side, but my hunch is that's probably right there underneath the heart or right there covering the heart. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. They, tell, they shall become one flesh. Ever since the beginning of time, this has been the normal and natural course of men, men and women, hasn't it? So why now? Think about this. I want you to think about this. Why now, after over 7,000 years, is there just this dramatic shift, specifically in the last three years? Why is there this dramatic shift? Because we're being bamboozled. America's being lied to. We're being deceived by federal and state authorities. We're being deceived by the media and leaders, even some of them in the medical profession, not all of them, and certainly not all of them in the others either. There's some good, really good people in these places, don't get me wrong. All right, I'm done with that. Everyone's going, oh, thank God. It needs to be said. And I'm not afraid to say it. Because I believe it with all of my being. And I believe I have the Spirit of God on that. Not because I'm anything, but because he said it. And if Jesus were here, I wonder what would happen. <laughs> Physically, he's allowing them this space to turn from their sin. And it's grave. Because it's kids. It's kids. It's your kids. It's your grandkids. But speaking of this becoming 
you know, two becoming one flesh, I want to share something with you that's really interesting. In Jewish wedding customs, uh, and it's also true in many other countries in the world, weddings were arranged and the parents of the young man and the young woman would arrange the, the marriage. And in a Jewish wedding custom, there would be a betrothal period of one year where the couple would legally be married, but they weren't allowed to consummate the marriage physically. And we saw this in the betrothal period of Joseph and Mary. Remember when Mary became pregnant during that one-year betrothal period. So the contract had been signed between the parents. Joseph and Mary were legally married, but they were not to consummate the marriage. And now she is pregnant, and she says, well, the Spirit of God came inside of me, and, you know, and, and that's, what, you know, that, that's where the, oh, oh, okay. Uh-huh. Can you imagine how that shattered Joseph? Nobody believed her. And there she was. And and at the end of that year, um, well, actually, had the Holy Spirit not spoken to Joseph in a dream, he would have put her away quietly. He would have divorced her quietly. He didn't want to make a spectacle of her because he was a good man. But had not the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, spoke to him in a dream, he would have done that. And so during that year of betrothal, the groom, he would prepare a home for him and his bride. And as I say this, I want you to be thinking about our relationship with Christ. Didn't he say that I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am you might also be? So while we await for our husband, our groom, to come for us, the bride of Christ, he's preparing a place for us, just like the Jewish wedding custom. And during that year betrothal, he is building a house for his bride. And then at the end of that year, the groom would unannounced, and according to his father's command, he would go and retrieve his bride and bring her back to his own home, which he had prepared for her. And the bride, think of how hectic this is, ladies. She had no idea when that day would be. You know, I would imagine she probably had her wedding dress there hanging on a hook by the door and a little mirror with all of her little makeup bag, right? And she's just waiting for hear that sound, the procession coming. Ah! And then she's, you know, you know, putting her thing on and, you know, putting on her dress and, you know, putting the corset on and all that. And she has no idea. At any moment, he could be coming. And isn't that true for us? We wait for Christ. Any moment he could return for us. But what does he tell us? To be ready. To be ready. And she had to be ready too because when he came to the door and knocked, she needs to open that door and be radiant. And he would take her. And there would be a seven-day festival of both families and they would enjoy each other and they would consummate the marriage. There would be a big wedding feast. Does that sound familiar? And folks, Christians, that's true for us. That's what's coming to a theater near us. In stereo, where available, right? But even in our culture, a man is to leave his parents' home and then once married, leave and cleave to his wife in their own home together and to begin a family. This is what it is all about. It's always been about that from the very, very beginning. And marriage is something that uh, from time immemorial, this has been the way it is and, and has been. And marriage is something, again, that God created. He invented it. And it's between one, and I have to say this, forgive me if I'm a broken record. Marriage is between one biological male and one biological female. Okay, that's what God meant, right? And God does not accept or condone marriage in any other way. He will not. He will not accept it in any other way than what he has spoken. And we don't have the right to change or alter what God has ordained. If we do, we do it at our own peril. God wants us to choose life. What does he tell us in Deuteronomy In Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 15, before the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan into the promised land, 
What did God tell Moses to tell the children of Israel? He said, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments. Why? That you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. That's God's prescription. We are obedient to his word. And we were obedient to his definition of what love is. And the definition of love in our culture is so crazy. What is love to you? Well, if he buys me the diamond ring and gets me the car and has a nice house. And I also want that, fit, that gym fitness thing. I want that three years now. You know, is that, is that what love is? Or is love sacrificial? Is love other-centered? Is love willing to be benevolent and give, even you know, with, with no concern about the person themselves, but more about the concern of somebody else? That is what love is. That is what real agape love is. It's self-sacrificing. It's not even concerned about self at all. Self doesn't even have any, it's not even in the picture. It's about the other. That's what love is, and that's what the world doesn't understand. And see, that's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is so important. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We couldn't merit it. We couldn't do it. But God loves people, doesn't he? And he wants you to live. He wants you to live a long, wonderful life. You know, even in the animal kingdom, even in the animal kingdom, God created great sea creatures, every living thing that lives, moves, and which the waters have abounded. And according to their kind, God made them. He saw that it was good, and God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And God repeated the same thing in Genesis 1 and verse 27. We've already looked at it. Be fruitful and multiply. Subdue all things. And see, a person involved in a homosexual relationship cannot fulfill that command. They can't do it. God made them male and female for a reason, for procreation, to fill the earth, to have dominion over it. Now, does he love those people? He does. But whether there's fornication, uh, heterosexual fornication, or homosexual fornication, it makes no difference to God. It's all sin, right? But he's created us with a design and a purpose. And when we follow, when we are obedient to that, we receive the blessings of obedience. And there's a conscience. You know this word conscience? Have you ever laid down at night and your conscience was completely defiled or your conscience was completely uh, tweaked so that you couldn't sleep because it was on your heart, on your mind, you wrestled with it all night and finally it's three o'clock in the morning you're like, man, I gotta do something. Because your conscience is not clear. It's because we've been disobedient. But oh, the joy of being obedient and being able to rest my head on the pillow at night knowing that I got my accounts straight with God. And I can lay my head on the pillow and say, Lord, I ask you to forgive me for everything. And by the way, here are a few things that I'm aware of, Lord. I did this and I did this and I did this. And Lord, whatever else I missed, you cover in the blood of Christ. And then you sleep like a baby because you believe that because you've confessed it, he has forgiven you because that's a promise the Bible makes, is it not? 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. If you confess it, he'll forgive you. But the institution of marriage is sacred. God holds it in high esteem. 
In fact, the Apostle Paul shows us this very clearly, and, uh, and not only does he hold it in high esteem, he holds it in high esteem because of its prophetic significance. And Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 tells us this, and he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Notice he's going to be comparing uh, our relationship as husband and wives with that of the Lord and the church himself. And he goes on and he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And now he turns the table on the husbands and says, you're, you're next, guys. Husbands, love your wives. Agape your wives. Self-sacrificing love. Putting her first. Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. He gave himself, didn't he? And gave himself for her. There it is. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And so husbands ought to love their own own wives as their own bodies. And he goes on in verse 30, and he says, For we are members of his body, of Christ's body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But then he says something really interesting in verse 32. He says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Do you see that? The husband and wife, that relationship and how that ought to work is the same as Christ and the church. And so as you begin to think about Christ... And you begin to think about us as church and what he has done for us and what he's doing for us and what he has yet to do for us. Gentlemen, let's, husbands, let's be thinking about that and say, boy, that's a tall order now for me. And of course it is. And you can't do it in your own flesh. That's why you got to surrender. Let the Lord do it through you. Love your wives. Sacrificially love them. And even when you don't feel like it. Have you ever felt like that? I think it's, you know, the devil will call you a hypocrite if you do this, but trust me, don't, don't listen to him, by the way. Let me just give you a hypothetical scenario. You're coming home from work, guys. You've had a bad day. You don't, you know, you're going to go home and you're going to take off your shoes and you're going to grab a glass of iced tea and you're going to sit in, you know, in, your, in your, perf- your, your favorite chair. But instead, you, this little thing inside, you know, why don't you just stop by? Stop by the store and get your wife some flowers. Get her some flowers and maybe a favorite drink from her favorite place that she likes to get. You know, go to Dunkin' Donuts or whatever and get her that spice mocha latte pumpkin thing spice. And so you do. You just do it out of on a whim. You do it on a whim. You, 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 didn't, it didn't, you didn't even think about it really, but you're like, you know, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to do it. I don't feel like it. I feel horrible. But you do it anyway. You bring her home. And she sees you at the door coming with her pumpkin spice latte from Dunkin' Donuts. And she sees you with your favorite bouquet of crocuses or whatever favorite flower of hers. And she melts. And her tears start coming in her eyes. And all of a sudden, your day just got a lot better, guys. That's what it is. Just do it. Even if you don't feel like it. Do it. The feelings will catch up later. They always do. Don't worry about your feelings. Your feelings are, you know, are numb sometimes. The world numbs us, but you do the right thing. You do the self-sacrificing thing, and you watch what happens, and it's a reciprocal thing because once you see her face with the flowers and her mouth is full of that pumpkin latte spice drink, she's going to look to you and tears are going to be coming out of her face, and all of a sudden it's like, wow. You're like teenagers again. And that's the way it works. That's what self-sacrifice does. It doesn't even originate from you. You just do it. Do it as often as you can. Just do it as an act of love. The feelings will catch up later. If you wait for the feelings, the the moment will come and go. It may never happen. If you wait for the feelings, especially after you've been married for 10 years, you got a purpose, right? But notice the similarities of our oneness 
with our spouse in the marriage covenant and the oneness that God has with us. Jesus praying uh, praise uh, concerning the oneness of believers. Remember in the Lord's true prayer was John chapter 7, 17, excuse me, and notice the way he speaks to his father. He says, I have glorified you, this is verse 4 of John 17, I have glorified you on the earth and I have finished the work which you gave me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory that I had with you before the world was. And then later on in that same chapter, in verse 20, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. Now, I want you to listen, and this is a, a place where pronouns are actually a good idea, because Jesus speaks of these pronouns, and it's all about unity between us and him and the Father. Notice this. I mean, it's just littered with it. I mean, you, your, your page would be red if you underlined all the pronouns of this unity between us and God and Christ. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one one just as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, you gave me, may, with, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me for your loved for you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love which you love me may be in them, and I in them. My goodness. It's, all, it's just a big love fest. Can you, can you sense the unity in the whole thing? And that's what Paul was talking about, this unity that we have. And it's just as the unity that we should have as husband and wife is the same kind of unity that Jesus has with us and the Godhead with all of us. And what a wonderful privilege that is, amen? Boy, we're not doing too good. I'm looking at the clock and it's my enemy. So guys and ladies, let's consider this covenant of marriage that we have, that God has given to us, that God invented and he created us male and female. And he put us together. He, what a genius he is, isn't he? I mean, God is the genius. He looked at Adam and he looked at Eve. Can you imagine what it must have been like when Eve was brought to Adam? You know, Adam is sitting there naming the animals and God says, Hey, Adam, I got something to show you. What's that, Lord? Well, come over here and I'll show you. And Adam turns around. What? I don't have curves like that. And he looks at Eve, and I can imagine, he's just blown. What, what, what now? <laughs> well, go talk to her. Hold her hand. <laughs> I mean, I, I love to see that if there's any kind of giddiness like that in the beginning. You know, just they're in, in complete innocence. And what a joy that is. And you know, the Lord wants to restore and renew your marriage. He had a plan. He has a plan. And his plan is good. And it's good. It's very good. And every marriage represented here, he wants to love on you. He wants to heal you. But you've got things to do. You've got things that you've got to invest in. It is an investment. And it, and it has to be something that you purpose to do. You, can't, you cannot just get into a neutral mode. Because if you are in neutral, if you're not doing anything purposefully, you are going backwards and your marriage is suffering. But you can be purposeful. And the best thing you can do is to get on your knees alone and with your spouse. If you do nothing else with your spouse, pray with them. 
Five minutes, ten minutes a day in the morning before you take off and all the weirdness happens throughout the day, get together and pray. Five or ten minutes. And if you've got more time, great. But do that and love each other and keep a clear, uh, no smoke and mirrors between you. Keep the communication open always. If there's something that's bothering you, speak. Don't let it go. Don't let your head hit the pillow if there's something in your heart that you need to talk about. If we did that, folks, the divorce rate would go, would be non-existent. It wouldn't exist if we did that. But we hide. And we do things we shouldn't do. And we're not tending our own garden. Our own garden, our marriage is like a garden. It has to be tended. Weeds have to be pulled. Fertilizer has to be placed down. There has to be work involved in it, right? Right? So I'd encourage you to just really think about that and maybe even reread some of these passages we looked at, Ephesians 5 and certainly the first couple chapters of Genesis. And just look at the beginning, the foundation. And God, notice he says it's good, it's very good. And when God says it's good and it's very good, guess what? It's very good. And let no man put asunder. Let no man, let nothing get in between that relationship with you and your spouse, nothing. It is the most important relationship for you when you are married. That is the most important relationship, more than parents. Your relationship with your parents, even with your kids, that marriage relationship is the most important thing. If that is solid, everything works great. If that is not solid, not so much. But let's work on it. I need to work on that. Can anybody agree with me on that? We need to work on it. But do it prayerfully. And turn a page this week. And guys, think of your wives. Do things sacrificially. What are the things that she's been asking you to do? Is there one thing? I mean, there's a few things. We've got shutters on the front of our house that need to be you know, sanded and repainted. I haven't done it yet. But I'm going to do it. Actually, while you guys are sleeping tonight, I'm going to be out there in my yard with one of those little lamps hooked up to a generator. <laughs> I'm doing it, honey. Be quiet so I can sleep. Do those things that bless each other. Amen? Let's stand. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for this time together. And uh, Lord, this didn't go how I thought. But that is good enough for me. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in, in our marriages, in our lives. And, and Lord, even for those today here who are here are single and contemplating marriage or desiring to be married, Lord, it is a good thing. And it's not for everybody, but most people, it's normal and it's natural and it's good. And Father, I pray that you would just remove the obstacles and, and, and protect, Lord, the church, the relationships, the marriages represented here at Calvary Chapel of Rochester that you would protect us all, Father, from the, all the things that the devil wants to do. In fact, I pray that we wouldn't even be considering him at all, but just, sh just looking into the light of your countenance, Lord, every single day through your word, through worship, through prayer. Lord, help us to do that. And Lord, may our relationships here be the strongest in the, in the, in the county. And may it be contagious. And may it spread, Lord. And may the word of God spread. And be glorified in us, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.